0: Please open up your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians. We are in the second week of our Jonah series, but like last week, we want to begin with the book of Colossians and then launch into our passage for the morning. I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Paul writes, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What a great text. Reminds us that the gospel is radically personal and incredibly global at the same time. Reminds us to remember that we were once alienated from God, we were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds against God and against others, much like pagan sailors that we encountered last week. We were helpless, but God reconciled us to himself in Christ to present us holy and blameless, above reproach, and that is where we stand on the sure, steadfast hope of the gospel. Last week, we began with seeing how the book of Jonah is framed in the context of a global narrative. God working a plan from before creation through the story of Scripture leads us right up to where we are today and that will go on and on until he has accomplished all that he will accomplish in this world into the age to come. How God is at work in the nations. He's at work in the nations around us right now, as he was at work in the nations of the ancients, as we see through the storyline of the Old Testament. And through it all, God has a witness. He is the only sovereign king. He is the sovereign one. And then we're introduced to Jonah, this prophet, who is to be a mouthpiece of God, to speak God's word to his people, calling them to covenant covenant. Faithfulness, covenant obedience. That was his primary job. And yet, he himself failed to live out that covenant faithfulness and covenant obedience. Jonah was to believe God's word and judge all things by that word, even bringing corrective to his own perspectives. His own thoughts, his own feelings were to be grounded in God's truth. And they were not. Much like a ship tossed on the waves was Jonah's heart and his faith. When what God said was confronted with what he felt and what he thought. And we'll see more of that as we go through the story. And yet, like Adam and Eve before him and us today, that's exactly where Jonah fails. He knows God's truth. He doesn't want to live out that truth. Especially where it comes against his own feelings and judgments. We saw then how, though Jonah had an accurate view of God, his rejection or failure to submit himself to that, to live according to it, actually led to an inaccurate view of himself. He could not see himself clearly. The sailors saw him clearly. The fruit of he was bearing revealed clearly. There was something wrong. And yet, through Jonah's disobedience, we saw that God would be glorified and he would reveal himself to pagan sailors who would become Yahweh worshipers. Those who had been alienated from God at the end of chapter 1 are worshiping God. And Jonah, the one who should be the worshiper of God, is quiet. And he very much seems to be alienated from God as he flees God's presence, as he wants to hide himself from the Lord. And so we come into Jonah, the end of chapter one, where Jonah has been tossed overboard and he is drowning. He is going down into the depths of the sea. He cannot breathe. He will if he continues, open that mouth and inhale water and he will die. His situation is hopeless. What will happen? We know the story, most of us. And yet, we wanna be caught up in the story. We wanna feel the story because as he's thrown overboard and as he's going down and as he's apparently hopeless, what is his hope? And the question comes to each one of us. Where do we turn where things feel, appear, look hopeless? Where do we turn in our pain? Where do we turn in our heartache? Where do we turn in our suffering? Where do we run when we feel sad or bored or when we are hurting? All of these things are real. And Joan is being faced with this reality now. In light of his sin and in light of his disobedience, what will happen? As we come into our passage, let's pray together and ask God to open our eyes this morning to his truth. And so, Father, as we gather here as your body, your precious body, whom you died to redeem, Lord, as you've drawn us from many nations throughout all the centuries of the world into this place, into this time, this season, Lord, we pray that you would stir us as a body, that you would awaken us from slumber, that you would meet the unique needs of each one individually through your word this morning, that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that your word would be alive, that we would behold our Savior, Jesus. Lord, may your truth penetrate and may you build your body this day, we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. And so we come into our passage. We actually start at the end of chapter 1 in verse 17, where in the midst of Jonah's great need, what appears hopeless, where he appears lost, it says that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, the purpose of the text isn't to make us wonder, what kind of fish was this? You know, and if you happen to Google what kind of fish might have been big enough to swallow Jonah, you can discover all kinds of things. You might even read a story about a a guy who spent a few seconds in the mouth of a humpback whale. But that's not where the text leads us, though there's no question that in that day and at that time, This is real and it's true and it happened. Where the text points us is that in the midst of Jonah's helplessness, God appointed. Just as God appointed a storm and he hurled it, just as God appointed the lots to point out Jonah, God appoints now a great fish to swallow him up. If you remember, God did not allow Jonah to be saved through the sailors rowing. He did not allow Jonah to be saved through his own efforts. In fact, the text makes it appear that Jonah did not want to be saved. He was very happy to be thrown overboard. But even in that, God would not allow Jonah to die in his sin and rebellion. Even though the wages of sin is yeah. death. And the truth is, To run from God's presence is to run towards death, always. To run towards sin is always to run towards death. In fact, the the story could have stopped right there. And Jonah sank to the bottom of the sea and he died. The end. And we'd say, children, don't be like Jonah, right? The whole story would change. You don't want to be like Jonah. Don't flee God's presence because it will lead to death. And that would be very just of God. He could end it right there. We would say, yeah, that's right. Be like Joseph. Run away from sin, right? Run towards God. Don't be like Jonah. But God is a pursuing God. And he writes the story, beginning and end, and the means to that end. And in that, God enters in and intervenes in the most unexpected way possible by sending a severe mercy into the life of Jonah. Because as Jonah is swallowed by a fish, none of this is pleasant. This is terrible. You can imagine the darkness the dankness, the stench. I wish the text drew it out. It doesn't. That's not its emphasis. But in reality, this is a mercy where Jonah is saved, but it is a severe mercy. I first heard that phrase, a severe mercy, it it was the title of a book that my wife was reading a number of years ago in Uganda. It was written by a a man who had lost his wife and he was writing letters to C.S. Lewis, who also had lost his wife. And he talked about God's severe mercy in the midst of the grief and the pain and the loss of his wife, that God met him with a severe mercy. And even in her death, it was a severe mercy, if I remember right. A severe mercy is not pleasant to go through, but what is gained through the process outweighs the thing that was lost. And here God sends to Jonah a severe mercy where he is awakened Awakened, awoken, awakened. It's West Virginia. I don't know how we say it here. From his spiritual slumber. And God brings life into that heart that is deadly asleep. I wonder if any of us have passed through a severe mercy. I'm sure we all have our stories, some greater than others, It is a great process. Often it is a weight that we feel like we cannot bear and yet as God bears it for us, we discover that he is stronger than our greatest weakness. I think of children in Uganda that have lost their parents. They've passed through great suffering. Some have been mistreated and abused. It is tragic and they're brought into a community of Christ's followers, where they are introduced into the love of God, and that love is imaged through the love of people, imperfect people, but through people, and they are brought to discover that God is the father to the fatherless, and that he is the true father that gave them life, that they exist by him and for him, and that there is a greater family, and that there can be an experience of what is greater, That is a severe mercy, and I've heard those children give testimony and thanks, even for the pain and the suffering, that they might discover this God and know Christ and enjoy life in family, redeemed family. That is a severe mercy. God often meets us in ways that we do not expect. It is for our good and for his glory. And Jonah has now encountered the mercy of God in a most unexpected way. Not pleasant. And it's here for the first time in the book that Jonah is actually going to pray. If you remember in chapter one, he kept quiet. The pagan sailors are praying, he's quiet. The captain says, Pray, and he's quiet. In fact, even in his grumbling, he's just quiet. And now the prophet speaks. Chapter 2 verse 1 it says that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish and there's an emphasis there Yahweh is Jonah's God though he's been fleeing from him just like the pagan sailors fear Yahweh offer sacrifices and make vows now Jonah who we thought he claimed to have feared God but doesn't obey Now it seems that something is changing, something is turning, and we're going to lead into this poetic prayer. And this poetic prayer that starts in verse 2, it's actually not necessary in the passage. Really, we could just read it from verse 17, that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, skip down to verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And you move on with the narrative. That's all that's necessary. There's a flow there. And yet Jonah's prayer is brought to us very strategically because of what it's going to reveal about Jonah and what God is going to speak to us through Jonah. There's a a poetic structure to the prayer. There's different ways that we could read it. You can just read it straight. He he calls to the Lord in his prayer in verse 2. In verse 3, because you cast me into the deep. There's judgment here. In verse 4, I'm driven from your sight, but I'll again look upon your holy temple. That would be, if if we structured it, A, prayer, B, judgment, C, I'm driven away, then verse five, he comes back to judgment. The water's closed in over me. The weeds were wrapped around. I went down. So again, it appears he's he's gone back to the judgment. And then at the end of verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remember the word my prayer came to you. There's prayer again. You see, this, you see the pattern? Prayer, judgment, I'm driven away, but there's hope. Judgment again, and prayer, A, B, C, B, A. Sort of the flow. And yet, As you walk through it, it builds, and it builds until it culminates at the very end. And so as we read it, be mindful of the the poeticness to the passage, even as we look and see what God is speaking through the passage. So in verse 2, I cried out to the Lord. Notice he says, it's out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. As Jonah is confronted with his greatest suffering, going down, down, the fear of that reality of drowning, he cries out, and he enters into really what comes out of him is poetic in the sense that he's he's tying it right back into what he knows. What is in him is coming out, because the language is just poetic loaded with psalms. We don't have time to to go through all of the psalms that, that are imaged here. But that's what comes out. As Jonah's squeezed into the darkest place, God's word starts flowing out of him, even though it is specific to his situation. In fact, if you listen to the language of Psalm 3, verse 4, the psalmist writes, "'I cried aloud to the Lord, "'and he answered me from his holy hill.'" Psalm 118 verse 5, out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. Psalm 120 verse 1, in my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. And it's in that same language that Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Jonah is going to be saved. Because God answers prayer. Even in the darkest place. Notice he says, Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Where is Sheol? Sheol in the ancient world was just the place of the dead, the holding place. It's where you go as you await the the coming future judgment. Often in the Psalms, you'll hear David talk about going down into Sheol, or I was uh, on the edge of Sheol. You'll hear hear this, this poetic language, it's as if I am experiencing death. And it's the place of death where man doesn't praise you. It's the place of death where, God, we are removed from you. At least that was the belief. And yet that was not true, as we will see. Because it's there in the midst of Sheol, down in the water. Down, often the water in the ancient world was the grave. It was chaotic. It was a place of death. And to go down into the waters is to experience that. And we see that in verse 3. As you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. And the language is very similar to Psalm 42, verses 5 through 8, which I won't read. But Psalm 88, 6 and 7 says this You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You hear the echo? all your waves and your billows passed over me. And it's here that Jonah draws our attention to something. Because the reality is is that the sailors threw him overboard. And Jonah was thrown overboard because of his sin and rebellion. And yet in the midst of all of that Jonah recognizes something so important. And that's that God's sovereign hand is at work in all of it. Sailors did it? It's because of my sin. And yet God, and he says it, you cast me into the deep. Your waves and your billows passed over me. Like we heard last week, as Joseph said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. He sees God at work even in the sinful actions of others or even in his own. It's ultimately God who is pursuing him. It's ultimately God who is with him. And that should echo with us because the whole point is that Jonah's trying to flee God's presence. He's trying to get away from God as if there's a safe place outside of God's presence and he cannot escape God's presence. He cannot escape God's presence because God is everywhere and he's involved in everything. Everything. And God opens his eyes to this truth and this reality. The language in verse 5 echoes this. It says The waters closed in over me to take my life, the deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars had closed upon me forever. Jonah knows he is as good as dead. He is being held by the prison of death. You see that imagery of the weeds wrapped around his head. and At the root of the mountain is the deepest, darkest place you can go. And that is the place and the way to death. Jonah knows he is finished. He knows that God is sovereign in his work. And yet Jonah knows that it is his own sin that has brought this. Look at verse four. Verse four is crucial because it says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Now, we know that the truth is, he isn't driven away from God's sight. He's not proclaiming a truth statement, but he's making a poetic image. Because as Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, as they exalted their perspective above God's, as they ultimately believed the lie is truth, they were driven from the garden, from the place where they were with God. And as they were driven from the garden, in the same way, when Cain kills his brother Abel, he is driven from the presence of God. And this language that Jonah brings out here, that I am driven from your sight, is drawing on this type of imagery where in Jonah's sin, he knows he's being driven away from God. And yet, the truth is that he is being drawn back towards God because God is, is the pursuing God. Look what he says. He gains hope. He says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So that doesn't make sense. If he's being driven from God through his sin, if he is being surrounded by the flood, if he's being brought to the point of death what hope does jonah have he has no hope and yet hope awakens in him as he cries out to god in prayer he knows somehow i will look upon your holy temple we're reminded of the the words of psalm 139 Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me in the midst of the most difficult situation of his life where it feels like god should be the farthest away the truth is god is right there with him the truth is no matter how you might feel in the most difficult pain of your life or circumstance or situation truth is god is there and God hears and God is at work at the end of verse 6 in this imagery of going to the roots of the mountains says i went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever look at what he says Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. It was you, God, who brought my life from the pit. It was you who were there in the depths of Sheol. It was you who appointed a fish to bring my salvation. Because you are the pursuing God. Because you pursue your people. That leads us into verse eight. As we get the flow of verses two through seven, it is a beautiful flow. Again, my prayer to you in the midst of the judgment I was under and the hope that I found, and the reality of the judgment I was under, but you brought me up, God, you hear my prayer, and then listen to verse eight, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, (laughs) I read it that way on purpose, because it almost feels out of place, as you walk through the poetry, where is that coming from, this Right, we get the A B C B A. We can see that structure. We can see the, the the weaving of these themes together, but it leads to this unexpected D at the end of the poetry, and that's the point. All of it is building to this piece of wisdom to this lesson that Jonah wants us to learn and that God wants us to learn and that he's going to speak because in the midst of his near death and God being revealed as the Savior, he has a message. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Well, for following the narrative of kings, we know, as we talked about last week, that, that as Jonah comes on the scene, he's coming right on the heels of Elijah and Elisha. And after Jonah will come the prophet Isaiah. And it's during that next season that Assyria will come down. And they will take the northern kingdom into, a, into exile. And as 2 Kings comments on this in 2 Kings 17, it talks about the reason that Israel goes into exile. Listen to what it says. In verse 15 it says, because they went after false idols and became false. Another way to translate it is, they went after worthlessness and they became worthless. Idolatry was the central issue for Israel. It was, it's the central issue for Jonah. It's a central issue for us today. It wasn't just the pagan sailors calling out on their false gods, worshiping idols in place of God. Ultimately, Jonah wanted to worship the God made in his own image. He wanted the God made in his image. He didn't want God to be merciful. And we'll see how that plays out. And that is a form of idolatry. Ultimately, Jonah exalted himself above God. He became his greatest idol. And we become our greatest idols. So what is an idol? What does it mean to pay regard to vain idols? Because idols are empty. They're worthless. They do not or are unable to give what they promise to deliver. They cannot. G.K. Beale, in his book, We become what we worship. Quotes Martin Luther's larger catechism. His discussion on the first commandment. And this is what Luther says. What is an idol? It's whatever your heart clings to or relies upon. That is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. I had to read that a few times to make sense of it. Trust and faith in the heart alone, make God an idol. And the truth is, he's right. Because ultimately, when we bow down to an idol, we're believing a lie that says, this will give me something I'm lacking. This will provide something I need. That takes faith. Trust of the heart. And that makes an idol. Beale adds on to that, whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate Security. That's an idol. And that's helpful. Whatever our hearts cling to, whatever our hearts rely upon. All right, where do we find our security, our significance, our success, our popularity, our provision, our protection, our control? Good things become idols, whether it's our bodies or our jobs, houses. Food. Coffee. Oh, coffee. Peter understands. (laughs) Families. Sports, exercise, comfort. You name it. Good things become idols. Somewhere else, stated that the idol is whatever claims the loyalty of the heart that belongs to God alone, whatever captures our hearts and our minds, whatever we find ourselves centering around, whatever we turn to when we're bored or frustrated or angry or disappointed, whatever we fill ourselves with to try to cope. Calvin called the human mind a perpetual forge of idols. I've heard it translated as the human heart is an idol factory. Just popping out idols. Why? Because idolatry is as simple as the craving of stuff. Rather than being able to receive what God has given with thanksgiving and worship, because the thing isn't greater, it's God. It's God who is greater and it's God who we worship and it's God who we center around and it's God who we fill ourselves with. It's God who we align ourselves with for truth and it's God who will make sense of the world for us and it's us who get in line with that lest we become our own idol. Those who pay regard to vain idols, guys, that's us. Jonah knows that's him. He knows this is the stumbling block of the nations. Look at what he says. Cuz he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say that those who pay regard to vain idols, they're going to get thrown into the sea. Look at what he says. They forsake their hope of steadfast love. And that's what's meant to captivate us. That's what's meant to meet us and say, "Brothers and sisters, Awake from your slumber, there's something greater. There is a hope of hesed, of God's steadfast love. I love that word. God's covenant love, his faithful love, his committed love for his people, his loyal love, his mercy and compassion overflowing. You can't get enough because the well doesn't end. It's just flowing out of him. That is his hesed. That is his steadfast love. There is a hope of steadfast love. Just let it sink in. There is a hope of steadfast love. God is good, and He does good on behalf of His people. And that's why to have God is to have everything. Is God enough? It is in our need where God is revealed as the one who is our provider, protector, and satisfier. When we fill ourselves with idols, we are taking them into our hearts. We are actually missing out on discovering the hope of God's faithfulness and his mercy and his love for his people. And I've been guilty of this a thousand times over. I think C.S. Lewis says we are like children in the mud making mud pies when we have a holiday offered for us at the beach something like that i just sure i didn't hit it right but because as we i always use this phrase as we suck on our idols right as we turn to them as we allow them to give us false comfort false security as we allow them to fill us with false provision false pleasure because they cannot deliver what they promise we are actually robbing ourselves of what is greatest God's hesed love because it is the satisfying, pursuing love. And that's what Jonah wants us to see. Don't miss out on God's hesed. How do we know that we have a true hope of hesed? How do we know that this hope is sure? How do we know that there is something greater? How do we know that God will be faithful in all the ways he has said he is faithful. How do we know? Because there was a greater prophet who was a greater Jonah. He was God's truth. He lived in the fullness of God's presence. He was sent to earth, born of a virgin, and lived a perfect life, worshiping God, Obeying his father, he spoke in Matthew 12 and he said, Of course, I'm speaking of Jesus. He said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights. In the heart of the earth. And then in verse 41, he says, Something greater than Jonah is here. Who is greater than Jonah? Not even a small greater. Jonah, greater. It's Jesus. See, when evil people sought to put him to death, he was not saved by a fish. Because God appointed, not a fish, but appointed his death so that through his death we would be saved from God's judgment against sin and sinners. See, God appointed a cross for Jesus to bear. God never forsook Jonah but God forsook Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And through Jesus, God never forsakes us. When Jonah was suffocating under the water because of his sin, God saved him. And he spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. But Jesus died a suffocating death on the cross and he went into the ground into the grave for three days and for three nights. But the story doesn't end there because he didn't stay dead. And just as Jonah was released after three days and three nights, and the text says in verse 10 that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land, that in a sense that the earth gave up. It could not hold the Son of God in the ground. And after three days and three nights, He was raised by the power and the glory of the Father. We have a greater hope than the hope of Jonah because the ultimate hope of Jonah wasn't in a fish. It was in the one who would come and bear his sin and take his death. And that is our hope. And it is a hope that brings us into the very presence of God where right now, Wherever we are, there is a savior who abides in God's presence and who has given us his spirit, who dwells in us. Where can we flee from your presence, O Lord? Wherever we go, you are with us. And he stands at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes and prays for his people as the perfect high priest. And his spirit intercedes in our suffering and in our pain what God offers is so much better. And it's always better than what he takes. Do you know why? Because he gives us the gift of himself. God offers us the gift of himself. And that's what Jonah began to discover, that the gift of God himself is greater. My friend, Tim Kane is a pastor out in California. He and his wife, Abby, took in a small child. He he told us this story, wow, what a story. This baby was newborn, mother was an addict, the child was born addicted, and they took that child through the hardest weeks of his little life as the baby's body was going through withdrawal. And they loved this baby and they sang to this baby and they cried with this baby their hearts were to adopt this baby and out of nowhere if I'm remembering precisely it was a, not even a, a family member it was the girlfriend of a family member wanted this baby and so the family member came and said we will take the baby back and after I don't know if it was six weeks they drove this little baby with all the stuff that they had bought for him brought it to this home and they handed this baby over to a girlfriend not able to know what life was going to what life would hold now as they surrendered this child they loved and they went back into their car and tim said that they just wept and and the, the question that rose up in abby is the question that rises up in all of us in the midst of the most painful situations that we face and it's the question why why God, why cause us to go through all of this for this? And that's the question why is normal. But God doesn't always answer the why, but what he does answer is the, the unto. That's clear. Everything is unto something. And as Tim sat there with his wife, his words, they ring in my ear to this day, and she said why, he said to her, I don't know, but we get God. We get God. Because God offers something greater in the gift of himself. I remember being in Uganda after our first week there. Lord Beth was a little bit mad because we were so enjoying home and family and community. And yet we knew that we were going through a heart-wrenching transition to start packing things and getting things ready to sell and I remember her we were walking and she just with tears why this feels so unfair right she said it that was normal it's human it's it's right why and Tim's words were right there babe I don't know but we get God we get God and he is better those words of Psalm 63, because your hesed, your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's where Jonah points us. Those who pay regard to vain idols, we get stuck on, we want our answers, we want it our way. I want my pleasure, my joy, my satisfaction, the way I think life should go, I forsake the hope of Hesed, And that's where his steadfast love meets us. It meets us through the Savior who came and offers the gift of himself. You can hear Jesus' words in John 4. When we drink of the water that he will give, he says we'll never be thirsty forever. He is the satisfier of his people. We don't need our circumstances or our idols or our perspectives to rob us of the joy of experiencing his hesed. Because a heart bathed in his hesed is a heart that is alive. It is a heart that starts to experience freedom, and he does bring joy out of sorrow. And he leads to life, and that is great hope together in his body. As we come alongside one another, we become vessels of Hesed, the hope that we have in the one who came. So, where do you turn? In your pain, in your heartache, and your suffering. Where do we turn? In our disappointments and frustrations. The real question is, where else is there to turn? Because there's only one true place to turn. Everything else is vain idols. I love the words of Ephesians 5 when it comes and says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As God awakened Jonah, began to shine on him, he calls us his church. Arise, O sleeper. Arise. Cast down the idols. Cling to Christ. The text really ends in verse nine. Where he says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs. To the Lord remember the sailors at the end of chapter 1 they're sacrificing and making vows Jonah has come back he has repented I think that is implied in the text in verse 4 in his prayer he knows that salvation is of the Lord He's become like the sailors. He's been restored. As we read in Colossians 1, we again are reminded that we who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by the death of his son or by his death to present us holy and blameless above reproach. Brothers and sisters, let us proclaim together salvation belongs to the Lord. There is no hope anywhere else. This gospel is for us. It is for us right here and right now. It is good news indeed. Let's join in that chorus as we echo that salvation belongs to the Lord. We're going to do that as we come to the table. We're going to remember the, the, the sacrifice that was made. And as Jeremy comes, he's going he's to lead us there. But then from there, we want to worship and just Let God search your heart. Pray that prayer. Search me, oh God, right? Declare it. You've searched me and known me. And may we proclaim salvation belongs to the Lord. And so, Father, just praise you. And as a people, we want to be surrounded with your hesed, we don't want to be unsatisfied in all of the stuff that the world throws at us, in all of our own vain imaginations and vain strivings. and we want to be a people who don't have to get cast into the sea to be met by you. May you meet us right here and right now. Would you awaken us in our slumber and that we would behold our Savior, Jesus? Lord, that you would use us as vessels to one another and as vessels to the nations and that we would live out your hesed, knowing that you are better than life. Thank you for your word. Thank you for meeting with us today. Blessed be your name. Amen.